kind of a rough lesson that we heard a little bit ago. And when I was looking at the scriptures about a month or so ago, choosing which scriptures I was going to choose from our choices today, I was like, mm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. And then this past week, I was grateful that that was what we were going to hear this morning. Balanced by perhaps a more palatable gospel lesson. The Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney, who's created this lectionary, she says that the, the lessons that we hear this morning are about studies in vengeance, retribution, and the hope of justice in this world or the next. So let's start with the hope of justice part. The, the bit we heard from the gospel, this, this lesson that Jesus is offering, this wisdom that he is offering about Good trees bearing good fruit, bad trees bearing bad fruit. And, and the idea that like the core of who we are emanates from our hearts. The words and actions move from the heart out of us. This falls in the greater context of Luke's Sermon on the Plain. You know, there's a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, and Luke's version is very similar, but it's set in a different setting, on a plane. And there's the whole, like, blessed are you, blessed are you, you know, that part. And then Jesus continues to offer wisdom in this sermon that he is offering to his disciples and the crowds that have gathered. And a few times over, in this, right before this bit we hear, he says... You want, to, you want to know the truth of it? Love your enemies. He says that a few times. And then right before this, he says, when someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. These stories this morning are about vengeance, retribution, and the hope of justice. And I'm all too aware that we are sitting in a time where we are very aware of the cycles of violence. Cycles of violence that are happening out there far away, but cycles of violence that are happening closer to home. What do we do with this? The, that old adage that like the preacher's job is to take the, the sacred story, like take the Bible in one hand and the newspaper, the media in the other, and try to make sense of things. I don't know that one can fully make sense of all that is happening, and I don't know that I want to even try to make sense of it. But I do want to look at somebody who I consider the hero of that first story we heard from Samuel. There was a lot of uh, warring and fighting that went on in the transition of power from Saul to David. It's like a whole other sermon that I'm not going to go into there, um, but it was not pretty. Um, a lot of sort of backstabbing kind of stuff, and also a lot of like relationships and friendships that were torn. Saul had lost God's favor as king of the people of Israel, um, and details are not important. But David is now stepping into this place. And this is the David of David and Goliath. This is also the David of David and Bathsheba. This is the David who unified the 12 tribes and like brought the people, the kingdom of Israel back together. And this is the time period that people today still look back and say, ah, that, those were the golden years for 
in the, the biblical context for the people of Israel, this, this time under David. David loved God. David is um, said to have written a lot of the Psalms. He was devoted to God. But also when David said, hey God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build you a temple in Jerusalem, God was like, actually there's been too much bloodshed on your hands, so your son can do that for me? Don't worry about that part. So I feel like David is one of those characters who, like, we can lift up with, like, all the good fruit, but he also, within himself and with the actions that we have, there's some bad fruit as well. There's a famine. David says to God, what do we do? And God reminds him that there's this blood guilt on the people of Gibeon. And that has to do with Saul and Saul's actions. And so David then goes to the people of Gideon. What can I do to make things right? Because David is trying to sort out the famine. And he asks these people, what can I do to make things right so you will bless us and this famine will be lifted? And they ask for the price of seven men from the house of Saul who wronged them. In today's world, to me, standing here in Marin, that makes no sense. It might make sense in other places in the world today. But if you step back into the world of the ancient Near East, thousands and thousands of years ago, it made sense, like an offering of life for life, for fertility, for the gift of life for others. It was horrifying. It's a horrific story that we have in our sacred texts, but it is there. And what happens next is Rizpah. Rizpah is, was one of Saul's wives, and she just lost her two sons. As a woman, she had no power. She is the most vulnerable person in this story. As a woman, she had no means of supporting herself or taking care of herself either beyond the, the ways in which her sons or her husband, who had been killed, could support her. So she, she has just lost everything. And she goes and she sets up camp where her sons um, have been offered up, and she stays there for like six months. And she stays there in witness to the horrifying actions that have happened. And she stays there working to use her body to protect their bodies in the only way she knows how. It is interesting to me, as if you look at the narrative unfolding in the text, the famine that David was so concerned about, it doesn't lift when these men are put to death. It doesn't lift until six months later when David observes Rizpah and all that she has devoted her life to in those last months. And he realizes, you know, I should bury these bodies. I should do right by them. And I should also go and gather up Saul, who was a, a, a beloved mentor and also an enemy of his. I should gather up Saul's bones and gather up Jonathan's bones. Jonathan, my dear friend and Saul's son, and I should give them a proper burial. 
to not bury the bones of somebody was definitely an, an affront, a bit of a like curse on your house, curse on your family. So it is after David has seen the witness of Rizpah that he, like I would say, makes the right choice. And then it says, the text says, that God sees what has happened and the famine lifts. There's a lot of different layers going on in the story. Because it does raise the question, like, did God need that sacrifice to fix the famine? Is that how things work, actually? Is it like tit for tat? Which is definitely not the way Jesus taught. Jesus, like we know from the, the gospel lesson and the context around that, he's, he says, like, treat others the way you want to be treated. Love your enemies, love your neighbors, like, go the extra mile. And I believe Jesus' invitation in that is, is let that work of transformation, of loving those for whom it's hard to love, start here. Start in your own hearts, in our own hearts. And the Spirit has a way of working. And it is slow. And it is oftentimes in very small ways. But those small ways gather and gain momentum and that ripple effect starts to grow. Jesus, when he talks about the, the depth and the abundance of God's love for us, what he knows, the stories that he is using to talk to us about this, are stories of the Hebrew Scriptures. They're stories of what we sometimes call the Old Testament. Stories that are sometimes really rough, like the story we heard from 2 Samuel. But stories that if you step into them and struggle, the um, name Israel means one who struggles with God. If you step into these stories and you struggle with what we are being invited to learn, to investigate, the ways we are invited to let them work on us, the unimaginable can happen. Jesus, the fully human and fully divine being that he was, that he is, stepped into our lives 2,000 years ago, and I believe that Christ works that way today as well. But he stepped into our lives to show us how we could do it, to show us how we could live in the best way, in the ways that God desires us to live. And I believe that he is trying to move us in a direction so that we too can become partners in working to knit humanity back together and working to build peace, which, which starts, I believe, with each one of us working with who we are and with those that are close to us, and then those that are a little far or farther away from us, and then that spreads and spreads and spreads. The Holy Land is, um, what did I say, my heart breaks for the suffering that is happening in the Holy Land, for all the people involved in the suffering. My heart breaks for those that are living in fear, not just over there in the Middle East, but also those that are living in fear in our country because they practice 
Islam or they practice Judaism. And there's cycles of vengeance and retribution that we've seen in this country working their way out in recent days. My heart breaks. And all I can think to do these days is to lean into the life and witness of Rizba. Rizba, who also in the text, she never says a word. Whether she did or not at the time, the writers didn't write down any of the words that she may have offered. But they did write about her actions. They did write about the way she showed up, the way she didn't turn away from the suffering, and the way she persisted until it was made right, until an, a sense of peace happened for those seven and the other two. My hope and my invitation for us this morning is that we would lean into the life of Rizpah and that we would lean into the truth that's at the heart of the gospel, that small acts of love, that everyday, ordinary acts of love do have the power to change the world. Amen.